So this evening, I would like to tie together some of the themes of the retreat and some of the questions that have been arising in the meetings with you and in the discussions with each other. And I've encouraged um, my colleagues to either remind me or ask me if we've discussed something I promised to address tonight and I forget. I have about five Dharma talks here, so we should have plenty of material to cover everything, but just in case. And um, yeah, so it's, it's also really good to be here speaking with you. One of the great things about having four teachers in a retreat is that we have a feeling of ease and plenty of time uh, unless we're preparing the talk that afternoon, plenty of time to meet with all of you and, and spend extra time. But the downside is none of us really get that much time to talk with you, each one of us. And we discussed this before the retreat, and, and it was so wonderful because every single person just really wanted to be here. We've worked together as a team before, I can safely say we love each other, and it's a wonderful thing. So here we are. And the topic is sacred longing. And I thought I would begin by sharing with you one of my favorite New Yorker cartoons. And it shows a group of pilgrims, and it, they're sailing on a ship that looks like it could be the Mayflower. and. One of the pilgrims is, you know, pointing off toward the distant shore, just coming into view and says to the other, my immediate objective is religious freedom. That's the sacred longing, right? My immediate objective is religious freedom, but my long-term goal is to go into real estate. So what makes a longing sacred? <laughs> you know, I know it takes a moment, doesn't it, to register. Um, but what makes our longing sacred? And what, you know, what's the difference between just playing the longing for anything and sacred longing? And that's, that's part of what I want to talk about tonight. And uh, Leela addressed, addressed this somewhat in her talk last night that, you know, the longing is sacred when it addresses the deepest longing that we have in our hearts, the longing to unite with our life and to really put an end to that sense of being a separate suffering self and to know deeply without any doubt that we're part of something that is bigger than just ourselves, that the self is part of something much, much more vast. And, and then we can as I said the first night, I love this phrase, Drishta Dharma Sukha Viharan, to dwell happily in the truth of things as they are. This would be a sacred longing, a longing for something that we can really respect and revere. When I started practicing, we, it was in the context of Zen practice, and.
we all wanted our sacred long, I mean, we all wanted enlightenment. And our teacher used to say to us, you all want to be enlightened, but you don't even know what that is. But you still want it. And we're like, yeah, we do. It sounded so good. Enlightenment, we wanted that. And then he said, and this was the carrot, you know, he said to us, okay, just really do hard training, hard training, and soon you'll get everything. And he had sort of pidgin English, so that was his way of saying to us, you'll get what you want. And so we did. You know, we did retreats just like what you're doing, committed practitioners, sitting and walking, when we were tired, when we didn't feel like it, one person said, why didn't you take our keys when we arrived? And you could give them back to us at the end of the retreat. Well, you stayed, even though we didn't take your keys away, you stayed. And we stayed, and we practiced hard. And it took a few years for me to realize what he meant when he said, soon you will get everything. And you've already discovered You know what he meant. He meant everything. That when you sit with yourself, you get everything, don't you? But of course, what did we think? We thought everything good, everything sacred, everything divine, everything holy, everything spiritual. Well, he meant everything. And... Of course, by the time that truth dawned on me, uh, it was too late because I had come to understand that to be able to embrace everything as part of the landscape of our aliveness uh, was actually something to want and really very much the Buddha's first noble truth, that there is suffering and we can include that suffering in our hearts and learn how to be present with the experience of it. We can do that. Um, One more story about enlightenment. This is a story about Mizumi Roshi, who started the Zen Center of Los Angeles, ZCLA, in the late 60s. And uh, The story is that Maizumi Roshi was sitting, just as I am, sitting here giving a Dharma talk. And uh, and somebody came in the back door and a drunk person staggered in. And it was a question and answer time. And this guy challenged the teacher. And he said, okay, Roshi. What's it like to be enlightened? It was one of those awful moments. And Maizumi Roshi just looked at him with great tenderness and said, very depressing. (laughs) And we laugh, but we also understand what this, you know, this enlightenment, this awakening is this being able to dwell happily in the truth of things as they are means seeing clearly, seeing clearly where we are, where we start our journey. And so we have, often we have a kind of um, idealistic 
view of what it means to awaken. And I like that story about my Sumi Roshi because when we're reflecting what is true and what is how things actually are, it isn't always a pretty sight, is it? And Dogen Zenji, the 13th century Zen master, he said that his only regret in life, I was very interested, I just read this recently and I've read been reading him for, you know, decades, but I was very interested to hear, well, what would he regret? This great Zen master, the founder of the Soto Zen school in Japan. And he said his greatest regret was the moments that he hadn't been fully present for his life. I'm sure you know that feeling. You sit here and you hear the birds sing and you hear the raindrops, and it's also, it's almost magical. It's just so vivid, and um, each moment, the truth of our aliveness. And then there comes, with the awakening to the possibility of being present in this way with experience, there comes almost a kind of grief for all the moments when we haven't been. And... um, Luckily, it's not about time. When I started practicing, I was, oh, I, I think of my mid, about 25, and there was a young woman who practiced with us at the Zen Center named Becky Burnin, and Becky was 19. And we, elders, who were all in our mid-20s, we used to say to each other, oh, God, Becky is so lucky, because she started practicing when she was young. Um, <laughs> And we meant it, you know. Uh, So everything is relative, and luckily this practice is not about time. And our understanding is not about time. And when we do understand, and when we are very present with experience, we're actually in a a quite timeless realm. So one of the things that... um, becomes clear is, and that I found actually very encouraging in my own practice, especially early on, was that it's exactly in the muddy water that the lotus blooms. And if you've ever been to um, areas where the lotus actually grows in uh, Southeast Asia or China, it really does grow in the slickest, thickest, deepest mud. And out of this mud comes this pristine flower. And the metaphor of the flower that blooms right in the midst of suffering, that we don't have to wait until conditions are perfect, and that we don't have to wait until we are a better person. Uh, that this flower of awakening can blossom right in the midst of suffering. And in fact, that's where it is the most nourished. So the longing for perfection or the longing, uh, we think of it maybe as a spiritual longing, but it's not so helpful. And one of the, there's a Greek myth that is about this. Um, it's, It's a little bit, 
it's a tiny bit violent, but uh, it's a Greek myth. You know, those myths and fairy tales, we love them because they, um, they are like that and they speak to us because they are like that. So this is the story of um, uh, Procrustes. Some of you might know who Procrustes was. I'm actually looking for this story to read to you, but I know it in case I can't find it. Um, so Procrustes was, um, according to the Greek myth, uh, was stationed by the entrance to the city, and I think it was Athens. Um, this is a figure from Greek mythology, and he was called, he was a giant, and he sat at the gate to the city of Athens, and um, he was a bandit. But he was a rogue, uh, he had been, uh, I guess, a blacksmith, and so he knew how to hammer metal. And so he stationed himself on the sacred way between Athens and Eleusis, where these mysteries were celebrated. And so we can understand it's a little bit like what Chaz was talking about, these temple guardians. You know, we have to be able to uh, move through the demons and the scary giants and so forth. But there he had this uh, iron bed and he invited passers-by to spend the night. And then he would set to work on them with his hammer. And uh, if the bed was too small for the guest, then um, Procrustes would amputate the extra length. And if the bed was, um, if the bed no, if the guest was too small, then um, he would stretch them to fit the bed. And nobody ever fit, fit the bed quite right because he had two beds. So if you fit one, then he would bring out the other one. And that was, of course, kind of secret. But, um, and he continued his reign of terror until Theseus captured him. And then he uh, fitted Procrustes to his own bed. Which, but this metaphor of the, we still use this metaphor, you know, all these centuries later of the Procrustean bed to illustrate this deadly process of applying ideals of perfection to ourselves, trying to um, take some sort of ideal of the perfect, mindfully aware being and apply it to ourselves. And whenever we are trying to control experience and to control ourselves and try to conform to these external ideals and standards, our aliveness is lost. It really is sort of hammered out of us and lost. Um, and this is the problem with the longing to be a spiritual person, like any image or identity that we struggle to maintain. We just lose our intuitive connection to what's really true. Um, I mean, ideals are very inspiring, but um, it's just important not to use them to oppress ourselves. The Dharma teachings are too beautiful to be used to, as another way to oppress ourselves. But to be willing to just be honest about where we are and where we begin. I was talking with Gina earlier about this, and she said, you know, it's like MapQuest. In order to find out where you want to go, you have to be able to type in where you are. And I liked that. I liked that metaphor. 
Um, because we all know that feeling of trying to um, find out where we're going to go and not actually being sure of the address of where we are. So I think that when something is sacred, it's worthy of our reverence and respect. And for something to be worthy of our reverence and respect, it needs to be attuned to what is really needed, what we really need at a given time. And I wanted to talk a little bit about needs and from the psychological and the spiritual point of view because, uh, again, this is something that so many of you, so many of us have struggled with. The idea that to need something, to want something is bad because it makes us vulnerable to not getting what we want and need, right? And often these things are conditioned from earliest childhood that our parents were made uncomfortable by our needs in one way or another. And, and so they you know, maybe pushed them away uh, in the mildest form and sometimes worse. But when a need is not met, it just feels so big. It can feel bottomless. Really, it can make us feel bottomless, like we're just these insatiable, I hate that word needy, but it can make us feel needy when a need is not met. And we can imagine that we are some sort of greedy, insatiable creature. And yet, when a need is met, it's so simple. Then we, it's possible to be satisfied, to have a need met, to be thirsty, to have a drink of water, and not be thirsty anymore. And not be thirsty because we let go of the thirst or the need for the water, but because we received what was needed. Just like when we're making a note of our experience, that note needs to be attuned to what we're experiencing. Like I was saying in the metta the other day, in order for us to experience that sense of relief that comes when we feel seen, met, understood with our mindful awareness and metta. Hopefully our mindfulness is suffused with a little bit of friendliness by now and a little warmth, if not tenderness. And when we offer that quality of attention to ourselves, we feel seen and recognized and met in ways that we're usually looking for from other people. And I'm not saying we don't need each other, and sure we do, because we never actually, um, in some deep way, can trust this is it. Just as we are, just this moment, this is it. Without somebody else to reflect that to us. Um, I sometimes tell the story of being with another one of my Zen teachers, Kobenchino Roshi, and, and we were having a meeting called Dokusan, and we were having it outside by a dried up creek. This was in Northern California. And you know how when somebody says a turning word or something important, you remember what you were looking at at, 
that moment. And so we had the meditation meeting and then we kind of caught up, you know, on our families. And then he suddenly, he just stood up and he brushed off his robe. He's a Zen monk and he brushed off his robe and he said, this is it. And I knew that meant our meeting was over. But because Zen masters are also always giving what we call pointing out instructions in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, like they're always pointing to the truth. I also heard him at that other level of, he was also saying, as he just, you know, brushed off his robe, this is it. And I remember the rock I was looking at at that moment, like, ah, that's right. This is it. So we need each other to just, no, yes, this is it, right here, right now. This is it. And this is uh, what the Buddha called the one fortunate attachment. And I'll talk a little bit about attachment too. The one fortunate attachment is to being present and understanding that there is no other life. I mean, we imagine there is, but actually, this is it. And in this sutta called, um, sometimes it's called one, um, an auspicious day. Uh, sometimes it's translated as one fortunate attachment. Uh, attachment in Buddhist psychology is not a good thing. It's being stuck. It's, you know, it's, you're attached, you're fixated, you're um, in the grip of something. And so he's saying, but there is one fortunate attachment. And um, he says, clearly see right there, not taken in, unshaken. That's how you develop the heart. Ardently doing what should be done today. For who knows, tomorrow, death, question mark. No bargaining with mortality and his mighty hordes. So the one fortunate attachment is understanding, or the one really auspicious kind of day. I like fortunate attachment. I think that's Bhikkhu Bodhi's translation, is not getting lost and caught in the past. Why? Because it's past. Not getting our knickers in a twist about the future. Why? Because it hasn't happened yet. And doing what needs to be done, which is clearly seeing right here, right here, that this is it. Not taken in and unshaken. What does that mean, not taken in? I think it means not caught by and attached to things that would distract us from being here. Um, there's a koan. It's a, it's a really, it's very simple and it's really good for this. Uh, it's a story about a Zen master named Zuigan and uh, his practice. This is how he practiced. His whole practice was he would talk to himself. So he would be doing his work and maybe working the garden or slicing vegetables or doing the dishes. And he would talk to himself and say, 
Suigan. Then he would answer himself, yes. And then he would ask himself a question. He would say, well, are you here? And he would answer himself. He'd say, yes, yes, I'm here. And then he would give himself a little teaching. And he'd say, do not be deceived by others. And he'd say, okay, okay. So he was, this is what we're talking about. This is what the Buddha was telling us. But this is, of course, in the, in the Zen terms. He's saying what hopefully we can also ask ourselves in any moment. Are we here? You know, earth to Trudy, am I here? Yes, I'm here. I'm here with you. Um, and so he called his name Trudy. Yes, are you here? Yes. Do not be deceived by others. Don't imagine that the happiness you long for or the satisfaction that you long for or the contentment or whatever it may be, don't imagine that it's out there. Don't be deceived by any others that claim that they will bring you lasting love and happiness. No matter what they say, we will live happily ever after together. You know, just understand, don't be deceived by that. Understand that the source of love and happiness is in your own heart, in your own ability to be present, in your own mind, and that this is what transforms our wants and our longings, the ability to shine this light of presence, of awareness, of all the things we've been teaching you over the last days. And I know the first couple days you were a little frustrated because you thought, okay, this retreat blurb said we were going to transform desire and I'm having desire and how do I transform it? And, you know, there was that kind of, when are they going to get to it feeling? But it's always the same way, I'm sorry to tell you. No matter which retreat you go to, it's essentially the same practice. We just find creative ways, you know, to present it to you. But it's the same practice, this being present with experience over and over and over and um, embracing it all, letting it go, stopping imagining that it's something out there and then living our life and acting from that realization. That's the Eightfold Path. And I like the way Zwigan taught it to himself, quite economical teaching. So attachment. In Buddhist psychology, it's what trips us up. Uh, It's inevitable. The world is quite a sticky place. We are quite sticky creatures. We're constantly sticking on things. This one said that to me, and it hurt my feelings. Ow, ow, ow. You know, we're just going through these things that we get stuck on all the time. How could she have said that? How could he have said that? How could I have said that? And so to see this process and to understand that it's not so helpful, um, this is why you hear attachment as something that is detrimental or difficult. And it's really confusing sometimes for practitioners because then people often start to imagine that they shouldn't be connected to things. 
that being detached is the spiritual goal. And so they can even, sometimes you just see people on the path cultivating detachment in the oddest ways, always, you know, never referring to themselves as I, um, you know, or just always saying everything in the passive tense or um, giving away all their possessions um, or, you know, stuff like that. Uh, Aitken Roshi has a wonderful um, saying about that which isn't in here, so but I can remember it. He says, um, when someone speaks of no self, remember, the speaker is there, after all. So he's really pointing to, um, yeah, that we shouldn't get attached to what we think we shouldn't be attached to. That's the main thing. No, I mean that. Uh, it's true. And then in Western psychology, attachment has such a different meaning. It's an accomplishment. It's an achievement. It's about being able to care and connect and be in relationship. And so it's a very different meaning. And it's something very desirable. It's about being able to be in Sangha and live in community the way we have been here. and. Um, being attached to each other means caring, you know, when Sarah sprains her ankle or when, you know, somebody is in pain or uh, all the things that we notice and care about here with each other. And so this is a very desirable thing. So just, just remember that the way this, is, this word is used in Buddhist psychology is really very different from the way that it's used in Western psychology where it's about that attunement and the ability to be empathic and to, I would call it practicing external mindfulness. We focus a lot on internal mindfulness in meditation, being mindful of our thoughts and emotions and sensations and breath in the body. And, but there's external mindfulness as well. And the Buddha was very clear, practice internally and externally. And the more you understand internally, about what it's like to be a human being, the more you understand externally how it is for others. You can relate to how it is for them and, and understand. So another thing that I really wanted to share with you tonight, it has to do with what I said when that a longing of ours is sacred when it's attuned to what's most important in our lives and uh, to what's really needed in any given moment. And uh, I talked in one of the meeting groups about this because some people were experiencing grief. It's a universal experience. We can look at grief as a form of desire too, the desire for someone who's lost to be here, for things not to be as sad as they are when we're grieving. And there's a kind of grief 
I call it crooked grief because it, it creeps in sideways. And for me, it happens when I'm busy and going about my life and I don't really have time to slow, or I imagine I don't have time, to slow into experience and really connect with what's happening in me. I'm going about my business and it ha I noticed it a lot after my mom died um, exactly two years ago. And sometimes my whole mind would be filled with a kind of guilty, a kind of soup, horrible, very smelly soup of if-onlys and um, guilt and regret and why didn't I do this for her and that for her and, you know, she wanted to do this and I forgot to do it or you know, just these constant um, self-reproaches really and it was so painful and Luckily, I knew this is grief, and I knew this from being a therapist, and I knew this from working with hundreds of people and from my own past experiences of grief. But I call it crooked grief because it's so painful. But when I could realize, oh, this is grief, and make an attuned note of what was happening, then it could transform into just sadness. And the sadness is all right. The sadness is, it's almost a sweetness of just missing somebody. And it's love, it's missing somebody. And, or it's a tribute to how much we loved and valued that person and their presence in our life. Uh, so this crooked grief can take the form of self-hate, of regret, of the if-onlys, and um, it does, it feels like it just blindsides us. Uh, and I want to bring it up because I think it's linked with crooked longing. There's sacred longing, just pure longing to be present, to grow in love and understanding, to grow our ability to love ourselves and each other, to uh, all the things that we're working together to do here, to be at peace with and um, harmonize with our life more and more, feel integrated, all the disparate parts of our own being. And then there's um, longing that comes out in crooked ways. And I want to spend a little bit of time on this because I think it's important. And I consider crooked longings to be what was it Leela said last night, eating a hamburger when you really want love or something? Yeah. Um, there, I talked about it. Um, <laughs> that's good, huh? <laughs> it's not even written down. <laughs> Here's my talk. <laughs> so um, that's like an example of a crooked longing. But, or for me, it's often, you know, eating chocolate when... What I really want is maybe, oh, so many things chocolate can substitute for. It's wonderful. <laughs> I don't have to go into them all, but um, <laughs> it's really a wonderful substance. And um, 
easy to take advantage of, but since it's a substance, we can't really take advantage of it. It's called abusing it, I think, um, at that point. But uh, this has to do, the crooked longing has to do with the kind of attachment that Buddhist psychology is addressing um, as opposed to the sacred longing, which I think of as the kind of attachment that Western psychology, the definition that Western psychology of connection that Chaz talked about. Um, this is from Mary Oliver. For years and years, I struggled just to love my life. And then the butterfly, it's actually a butterfly who's speaking in the poem. For years and years, I struggled just to love my life. The butterfly, Mary Oliver. And then the butterfly rose weightless in the wind. Don't love your life too much, it said, and vanished into the world. I love that phrase, and vanished into the world. Because when we are truly mindful, present, and alert, the self that gets stuck on things and loves things, you know, too much or not enough, or uh, it vanishes. It vanishes into experience. When we're wholeheartedly present, we vanish into experience. We just absorb into it in a wonderful way. And she talks about this in another poem. I couldn't find it, but I remember the last couple lines. I have to paraphrase up until then, which I know is painful to paraphrase Mary Oliver. You'll... um, Please forgive me, but she's talking. Some of you might know this poem. She's talking about um, being out as she loves to be out in nature. And she sees a fox, and the fox doesn't notice her. Do you know this one? The, I like to find ones you don't know. The fox doesn't notice her, and so she gets really still just like we do when we're inviting some wild part of ourselves to make itself known to us. She gets very, very still, and she says, I won't touch anything. I won't touch the blackberry leaf. I won't touch, you know, I won't touch anything. And we know this from our sitting. You know, we won't even touch a thought. We won't touch, we aren't going to touch anything. Just going to let it all be there. She's very still. And then the fox starts walking down a hill. And she says, so this is the world. I'm not in it. It's beautiful. So this is the world that can open to us when we're not caught in our fixations and attachments and procrustean ideas. It should be just a little smaller or a little bit longer, and then it would be perfect, the retreat or ourselves or our feet or whatever it might be. And we're not interfering with it. We can actually be still. And you've all had some moments like this by now, even just a fleeting one or two when you could be still and just see, oh my gosh, this is the world. 
when I'm not interfering with it. It's beautiful. We're so blessed. We are so lucky to be able to be here and experience this, or even know that it's possible to experience this. This is just a very peaceful thing to experience. So this is, uh, This is like T.S. Eliot, who says, teach us to care and not to care. These two, these two truths, and I will come back. I haven't forgotten about crooked longing. Um, these two truths, the truth of just our personal experience and what it is, the details, the uniqueness of each one of us having our stories, and no two stories, no two lives no, are alike here or anywhere, and the way in which when we're not in it, interfering with it, criticizing it, wishing for it to be some other way, any other way but the way it is, when we're not doing that, then it's desire transforms and we enter a more universal realm. We enter the realm of experience that really does belong to all of us, where our personal experience becomes a doorway to the universality of just being our humanness, our existential condition here. Uh, Coben, the one who said, this is it, he used to always say, spiritually, everyone is the same size. This was a very reassuring teaching isn't it? Six feet deep. <laughs> do you know what he meant? Yeah, you do. That's what he meant. Uh, that universal, you know, just the way that life is. Uh, Achan Cha says it this way, you should know both the universal and the personal the realm of forms, and the freedom to not cling to them. The forms of the world have their place, but in another way, there's nothing there. To be free, we need to respect both of these truths. And these truths weave around each other, and they're equally true, and they're inseparably true. Um, The word tantra means weave, and it refers to that interwovenness of the sacred and the, what's the opposite, the profane, the mundane, Um, but the interwovenness, the oneness of the sacred world and this conventional world. I mean, we say sacred and conventional and samsara and nirvana, but are there two worlds? I don't see two worlds. We're living in one world. It's one mind and one heart that are here. But sometimes we feel the oscillation of our particular personality, and sometimes we can, you know, that it can be a contraction, which is not a mistake or a bad thing. And then sometimes we feel the expansion into the space that can hold it all, that space of awareness that's so big, that big mind um, that can make our personal concerns seem so small, such a relief, so non-existent. And from that great awareness perspective, the self just seems to vanish into what is seen, heard, tasted, 
touched, vanish into experience like Mary Oliver's butterfly. So we have to be quite careful not to privilege the universal over the personal. Uh, there can be a longing to transcend the mud and just jump into the middle of that lotus, the lotus born, and be that one, you know. Um, but it, uh, it, it doesn't quite work that way. And when we try, um, we have a word for it. It's called spiritual bypass. You know, it's, it's, um, and it has to do, to me, it's actually a crooked longing. And so I said I would talk about crooked longing, and I want to because um, I learned some very interesting things when I was actually preparing for this retreat. One of the books I read was called In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, Close Encounters with Addiction by the Canadian doctor. Um, well, he's not originally Canadian, but he lives in Canada, Gabor Maté. And so, so I want to share with you some things that I learned from this book. I don't think we can talk about desire and longing without saying a few words about uh, addiction or crooked longing. This is from the uh, Brahmajala Sutra, the Buddha's identifying certain pleasures as potentially addictive. Um, he says, some, even ascetics and Brahmins, remain addicted to attending such shows as dancing, singing, music displays, recitations, band music, cymbals and drums, fairy shows, I like that one, Combats of elephants, buffaloes, bulls, and rams, maneuvers, military parades, disputations and debates, rubbing the body with shampoos and cosmetics. I like that one too. Bracelets, headbands, fancy sticks. I don't know what those are. Do you know what fancy sticks are? Um, Oh, oh, to hold your hair up. Okay. Um, unedifying conversation about kings, robbers, ministers, armies, dangers, wars, food, drink, clothes, heroes, speculation about land and sea, talk of being and non-being. And today we could probably include in those unedifying conversations, you know, celebrities, talk shows, we could include many things, our uh, electronics that we get so addicted to. What do they call the blackberries, crackberries, um, exercise. That's a good one, I think. But anyway, not if you're addicted to it. So again, it's not the activity or the object even that defines an addiction. It's our relationship to it. And this is where it's helpful, I think, to remember what Gina said about the content of thinking versus the process of thinking is not the content of experience that uh, is the problem, actually. It's the how we are processing and relating to it, um, to whatever is the external focus of our attention or behavior. And... Uh, 
you know, just as some people can drink alcohol without getting addicted to it, we can engage in lots of act different ones, even of those activities, talking of kings and robbers and so forth, without getting addicted uh, to them. Or we can relate to them in an addictive way. And the definition of addiction that um, is used here and that I use too is any repeated behavior, substance-related or not, in which a person feels compelled to persist, regardless of its negative impact on her life and the life of others. So this is to me an example of crooked longing, the longing that comes out sideways, the longing for probably what do we all long for? Love, connection, um, getting everything, spiritual awakening, um, and having them come out in this, in this crooked way. One of the things that I learned from this book that I really, it brought a lot of compassion to my heart, is that I can't go into it, it's not within the scope of this talk, but the brain mechanisms that have to do with addiction and how they are not something that can be just changed by will. So that first step of admitting we were powerless or we are powerless um, is actually really true. It's really true because the brain becomes wired in certain ways in response to early experiences of deprivation, neglect, or abuse, usually. Uh, not always, but usually. And it's not within our control, whether or not we become addicted, truly addicted to something. It's a brain problem, and so the disease model is, um, is truer. Of course, the good news is what Leela was talking about, um, neuroplasticity, that, that the brain can change and that we can actively participate in changing our brains because of the way that we think and behave and that uh, you know, what is the teaching of the Nyaponikatera in the heart of that wonderful book, The Heart of Buddhist Meditation? To that which we incline the mind, to that does the heart incline. I mean, what we pay attention to repeatedly arises then spontaneously. It seeps into our life. It arises on its own in our experience. And when we are bringing attention to anything, the neurons are firing, the neurons that fire wire together, we're laying down these connections in our brain. And I don't know about you, but when I first heard this, I was just ecstatic. And I thought, oh my gosh, this is every time I practice metta, every time I meditate. And then I was talking to my friend, the neuroscientist, Cliff Saran, and he said, you know, you Dharma teachers have pounced on this about neuroplasticity. But what you've forgotten is that neuroplasticity is always on. What he was saying is, we're always practicing something every moment. It's not just on when we're meditating. It's not just on when we're doing you know, very positive things for ourselves. It's on every moment. So with every moment, we have a chance to um, change our minds and change our brains. But as the wonderful um, UCLA 
a brilliant doctor who has shown, he's shown how in the brains of people with obsessive compulsive disorder, um, new circuitry can be successfully established that overrides the uh, malfunctioning circuits. Um, but he says, he's a longtime Buddhist practitioner, he says, um, any uh, treatment that exploits the power of the mind to change the brain involves arduous effort. Wouldn't you agree by now? <laughs> he says intention, intention, uh, the word in Pali is chanda, and it's a word for desire, but it means motivation, intention. It's, it's a neutral, you know, it's whether our intention is positive or negative. Um, exert real physical effects on the brain. And then what's so beautiful is uh, that the teachings of the Buddha are woven in. Everything in the mind. Everything is led by the mind. The mind in the forefront is made by the mind. With the mind, we create the world we live in. And the teaching of Buddhism is that the way to deal with our minds is not to try to change them, to you know, put them in those procrustean bed, but to observe them with compassionate curiosity, with caring, with mindful awareness, with um, the most wholehearted attention we can muster. It's being aware of the process of how our minds work to create both our longings and our abilities to let go, the process, as well as with the content of our experience. We work with the content too. So the crooked longings and the way that they change the brain, I think that um, for me it, was, it just brought a lot of compassion to realize that these things are the result of early conditioning that um, when we're in the grip of them, it's, as Wes Nisker says in his teaching, he likes to say, we are not our fault. I like that teaching. We are not our fault. Uh, it's not something, it's not about blame or shame. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I'm just going to take a moment to see what's most important to share with you since my time is really up. Did I forget anything I said I was going to say? Oh, King Pasanati's diet. Remember, she said that the Buddha was trying to help the king lose weight. And Leela thought it hadn't been successful, but it was. And I have the quote for you. It's from Stephen Batchelor's wonderful book, uh, Confessions of a Buddhist Atheist. And, well, I don't need to, I can tell you what happened was that 
the king, who actually didn't listen so well to many of the Buddha's teachings, because being a king, he didn't want to give up his power, and he would have people, you know, executed. And I mean, the Buddha didn't really change some of the fundamental ways that he governed, um, unlike King Ashoka, who came later and really had a very enlightened way of governing. But King Pasanati went from eating buckets of curries and um, curried rice and so forth to a pint pot of boiled rice and became, quote, quite slim. <laughs> so he did listen to the Buddha and it did work for that. Um, Well, we still have tomorrow. And I think what I really most want to share with you about this um, tonight is I spoke about that, you know, these two truths of our experience and how they're so interwoven. It's really one truth, but we use the language of conventional or ultimate because. If we were to say the ultimate truth, which is something like um, this self is made up of five streams of form, feeling, perception, and consciousness, and these five streams of form, feeling, perception, and consciousness will have a walking period after this, and it would be so clumsy. So we just use the conventional language and say, um, you will have a walking period, or your name or my name, and uh, so this is a matter of um, convenience and uh, functioning together. But at the same time, I really love the understanding. We can think of it more poetically. Um, this is, uh, there's a Zen poet named Leonard Cohen, and he, this is from Leonard Cohen. He's talking about God. But we can say Buddha, peace, Nibbana, the ability to stop and let go, whatever substitutes for the sacred. Um, he said, God, this is from what he wrote, uh, the book of longing. God opened my eyes this morning, loosened the bands of sleep, let me see the waitress's tiny earrings and the merest suggestion of her small breasts. And then he says, thank you, ruler of the world. Thank you for calling me honey. You know that feeling when the bank teller calls you dear or the waitress calls you honey? And it just makes you so irrationally happy. Somebody loves you. <laughs> You know, even when you're just ordering your coffee and you've got sleepers in your eyes, you know, somebody loves you. And he captures it when he says, thank you, ruler of the world. Thank you for calling me honey. I just love that. To be whole um, and complete on our spiritual path, we really have to honor the full catastrophe, the darkness and the light, the whole spectrum of our 
humanness. And then we see, yes, anger, a moment of anger is the truth of that moment. A moment of sorrow is just true in that moment. The joy is truth, life and death, pleasure and pain. And that's where we find the sure heart's release, the freedom that comes when we stop denying our various wounds and troubles and sorrows and instead allow our hearts through this presence and caring to transform them into wisdom and compassion. And even in the face of the oceans of suffering in the world, in this world, there can be joy. Even in that slick, thick mud, life can bloom in the midst of suffering. The joy that we can sit and walk and see how beautiful life is when we're not interfering with it. And we can face even our broken hearts and with a kind of poignant joy give praise. And this is um, also from Leonard Cohen. He says, even though it all goes wrong, and we know those days, Mama said there would be days like that, right? Even though it all goes wrong, I stand before the Lord of song with nothing on my tongue but hallelujah. We could sing it together. Do it. Hallelujah, 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 again. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. Oh, just one more time. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah,
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.